The early years of the Purple Gang's appearance on the drug scene were a tumultuous era for many of the mob-like drug syndicates operating in New York City, including the ones operating in East Harlem. But within the gang's own ranks, internal strife and petty beefs led to several killings that law enforcement scrambled to solve. More often than not, they were added to the list of unsolved gangland homicides. This early violence was one catalyst that led to the mythos of the Purple Gang as something akin to an elite hit squad for hire in the underworld. There were a lot of blood-spattered, drug-related homicides. Everybody suspected them, the Purple Gang, of doing a bunch of them but we couldn't prove it. The drug game was a violent one, and the gang was certainly amenable to dispatching business rivals with little to no provocation. A 1976 DEA report stated, much like the original Purple Gang that terrorized Detroit during the Prohibition era, the members of the current Purple Gang appear to have an enormous capacity for violence, involvement in numerous homicides, and a lack of respect for other members of organized crime. Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there. That little snippet you heard was a little bit from Scott Dietschy's new book about the Purple Gang of East Harlem, New York. Uh, I'll have links to, to get it, but welcome, Scott. It's really good to have you. Yeah, great to be back. Good to see you again. All right. Scott's been on here before. He did a, a show. Uh, we did a show about uh, the uh, New Jersey mobs and uh, what was that? Gangland? Uh, Garden State Gangland. Garden State Gangland. So I'll have a link to uh, find that down below, guys. Really good books. And Scott does his research. I'll tell you right now, he does his research. Scott also does famous for the Eber City or Tampa area mob tour, which I took. And if you look on my YouTube channel, you can uh, I did a little 10 minute segment of what you would see. So if you're you're down in, in Tampa in the winter, particularly, I don't think you do it in the summer, do you, Scott? No, we we don't walk around. It's not conducive to walking outside during the day. <laughs> That's what I thought. But it's a it's a fun tour. When you go to Florida next winter, or if you go, you know, well, it'll be next winter now. By the time this gets up, why well, go down there to Tampa and, and find the Eber City Mafia tour and and uh, talk to Scott a little bit. Well, he'll uh, he'll give you a really good tour. So the East Harlem Purple Gang. That's uh, that name for the original Purple Gang out of Detroit which was famous for a lot of murders. And, and how did you get onto this story, Scott? So actually, when I was uh, doing the research for Garden State Gangland, I uh, was looking into some murders in New Jersey in the 1970s, particularly the murder of uh, Johnny Lardier. And then his nickname was Coca-Cola Lardier. He was a Genovese gangster, and he was uh, in prison, in state prison. He had a furlough for the weekend, and he was killed outside of a motel. And the ballistics on the gun used in his murder tied into other murders of quasi-Genovese associates and people that were scheduled to testify against Genovese members. Mm -hmm. And all these guns trace back to guns that were trafficked out of Florida by a group called the Purple Gang. And, you know, I heard the name, obviously, the Detroit Purple Gang, but I heard about the East Harlem Purple Gang a few times over the years, but never really dug much into him and kind of got on a side tangent and started looking into it. I'm like, oh, this this might this might be interesting to, to, as a subject of a book because really a lot of um, mob stuff that was going on in the 70s in New York uh, and to current day, to some extent, tied into this group. So it that, that kind of initiated the interest in the topic. Now, you know what I find interesting about it is it's like this small group of some Italian American, some Irish, uh, kind of a, a mishmash, if you will, 
that's like organized, almost like a mafia family that operates in New York City together in an organized fashion, but outside the normal five families. Now, they had to be, people know what's going on. They had to kick up. Who Were their main connections back to the Genovese family? Yeah, so um, like you said, it was kind of a mixed group uh, that operated, but they all grew up in East Harlem. They all kind of grew up in the same neighborhoods. They were all kind of around the same age. Uh, and some of them had relatives, whether they were fathers, brothers, uncles that were involved with the five families. But you're right, the Genovese, probably the biggest, uh, the Bonanno family and the Lucchese. Those were the three that that most of the guys in the Purple Gang that that had connections tied to those three families. Now, as they uh, started exerting a little influence and power and got a little older and a little more organized, I assume they're like most gangs. Young men, gangs, they they start with smashing grabs and burglaries and kind of higher end thefts, home home invasion robberies, maybe. But then they got into the heroin trade, which was huge in New York by the 70s, as illustrated by the French connection that the, mm -hmm. the Italians were really into. They were the they re, were the people who were bringing heroin in from overseas before some of these other uh, black gangsters rose up. So how, how did they get into that? They just fall into that or act as enforcers or collectors? Or so the, in the early 70s, there was a series of, of cases uh, in in and around this this one stretch of road, Pleasant Avenue in East Harlem, which was, a, which was a huge epicenter for the traffic of heroin, especially in the Northeast. Um, and there was a big bust in the early 70s that, that netted, I think one netted over 70 guys involved in the heroin business. So a lot of the the older cohort guys like uh, Louis the Whale or Carmine Tremonti, who was the boss of the Lucchese family, um, they all got swept up in these raids, and it, and it kind of leaves a power vacuum on the streets of East Harlem. So these young guys who are kind of like you said, real kind of street level gangs, um, they kind of step up into this power vacuum and and take over the heroin trade uh, in the early seventies. So by the mid seventies, they they've really come to to kind of dominate that portion of that. Uh, there was a little bit of cocaine, but like you said, it was pr predominantly heroin. That was, um, that was our drug trade. Now, were they able to take advantage of the uh, really maybe hundred year old trafficking routes from um, the Middle East to Sicily to France, like the French connection, you know, first it went to Cuba to uh, Tropicante and then up mm -hmm. to Kansas City and all up the Midwest and the Northeast. The uh, Later on to Montreal, the French connection, where they, they were able to tap into that supply, clear black to Sicily, I assume. Yeah, so that was part of it. And also at this time in the early 70s, you see the emergence of the Southeast Asia route coming uh, into the United States as well. So they had a couple different ways they were getting drugs. Also uh, through Canada. So, but yeah, some of those... Early routes that that kind of French connection route started uh, started getting a little bit too much attention from law enforcement. So yeah. you know, as you would imagine, they they looked for other alternatives. But but they were able to plug in already to the existing kind of customer base and distribution networks that the older syndicate guys had uh, before they were busted up. Yeah, because because a lot of them were uh, you know as far as working it directly were out of it during the seventies and eighties. They kind of backed off. So I guess these guys, like you say, filled that back. Mm -hmm. And then uh, as, as they had this working relationship with, 
with the La Cosa Nostra, then did they start using them a little bit like uh, like uh, Murder Incorporated or something to use them for different things? So you got a bunch of deadly young guys like this that kind of want your attention, want your respect, then you can use them for things. It's been my experience. Yeah, and, and to some extent they did that. Uh, I'll give you an example. So just north of New York City is a county, Rockland County, uh, and there was a Genovese um can't remember if he was a cap. I think it was a capo at that point, but a Genovese guy, uh, uh, Joe Pagano, and he ran, he was trying to um, run the carding industry up there. So there were a couple private uh, garbage collectors. And in order to kind of push them out of the business, he hired guys from the Purple Gang and brought them up there. And they kind of, like you said, acted like muscle for him and were, you know, threatening to beat up carters and, and threatening the life of these guys that own these other private carding companies. So um, yeah, in, in exactly the way you described, they were kind of brought in as you know, these young guys with who were pretty violent, hot-headed, and let, let them do all the, the dirt work. Mm-hmm. Now these uh you mentioned the guns out of Florida. Were those were these these 22 caliber guns that, and you know Chicago had the same kind of a deal going. They were bringing especially some 22 mm-hmm. calibers up out of, of Florida. Was this the same thing? You know, any more, you're learning more about that kind of uh, ability to uh, get the weapons and, and spread them throughout uh, New York. Yeah. So they were going down predominantly 22s. They were going down to gun dealerships uh, in Broward County. Uh, for those not familiar, that's Fort Lauderdale, just North of Miami Dade County and purchasing all these guns and just literally just driving them up by 95 back up into New York and distributing them amongst the Genovese family. And the the main guys that were doing this were Purple Gang members like Frank Facerdo Jr. and, and Richard Rocco. Uh, so there was there was that connection there. Now, one of the interesting things is, like you said, there there was a spate of 22 caliber killings in the 70s because all these guns that were being brought up there in Chicago, uh, you know, was 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 an area where where they were being brought up. In fact, Sam Giancana was killed with a twenty two. Uh, you know, his, his murders thrown up there in this kind of rash of twenty two caliber murders. Yeah, even uh, out to Las Vegas too, because of the Chicago influence. That I think mm-hmm. Frank Culotta used one of those twenty twos, uh, and uh, Ken Ito uh, was a famous Chicago hit. And and they were reloading the bullets with less powder so it would make less noise and put silencers on them. And then the bullets weren't as strong. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but they did in Chicago. So they, they didn't get Kid Edo killed, and that hurt them big time. Uh, didn't sound like your New York guys uh, tried to, to mess with the bullets up there. Uh, it sounds like the, their 22s always worked the way they were supposed to. Yeah, they definitely seemed that way. There, there, was a, there were a lot of, you know, just kind of on an aside, one of the things that I found from doing this research is uh, I never realized how violent the mafia in New York were in the seventies, how many killings just even outside the purple gang, it was a really violent era, especially in the mid seventies for the mafia. I think it was a time of the same way in Kansas city, Cleveland, the Danny green thing. Mm -hmm. It's like the seventies was a time when the post-war baby boom, young guys start coming of age and they're wanting some more action. And the old guys who were like the mustache Pete's going back to the, you know, twenties were, were still wanting to hang on to what they had. So, you know, speaking of the older guys now, East Harlem, wasn't that fat Tony Salerno's uh, kind of area of operation, shall we say was, 
did he have a special connection with these guys or did he come play on this come into play on this there were some connections actually funny enough there were two um there was a tony salerno and a frank salerno who were tied in with the purple gang no relation to fat tony salerno um Uh but yeah so you know east Harlem, going all the way back to the foundation of the American Mafia, you had guys like um, you know, Clutch Ham Morello. He was based out of East yeah, Harlem. Right. Ciro Terranova. Uh, Joe Valachi grew up in East Harlem. So East Harlem is a real fertile ground for for Mafia guys. And and around the time the Purple Gang come up, uh, there's still a lot of Mafia guys. And, and like you said, just a couple blocks over, Fat Tony Salerno had his Palma Boy Social Club which was his headquarters. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think because of that proximity and that already some strong ties with the Genovese family, that that, that was one of the, the those connections that they had. Yeah. I mean, I noticed that in Kansas City, like anywhere around the city market here, if you had a bar or something, then the, uh, the mob, the, the Savella family felt like that they had some kind of proprietary interest just because of geography, because it was in their kind of <laughs> historical area. So, I mean, yeah. that's the mob. You know, they think they own you if you come within their purview or you, they do anything for you in any way. They own you the rest of your life. That's the mob, boy. And these guys, they were like, uh, I guess they were like La Cosa Nostra wannabes. Did they see themselves as a like a, a farm team for, for the La Cosa Nostra? Yeah, that, that's kind of a good descriptor because what ends up happening is so you know, the Purple Gang really lasts maybe 10 years as as this kind of real viable group. By the late 70s, early 80s, some of these guys start getting plucked into the majors, if you will, kind <laughs> of brought in as and made in, into some of the mafia families. So the group starts kind of dissipating. Um, some guys go into the Genovese family, Bonanno family, uh, uh, and you know, the gang kind of, there's still remnants of it, but by the mid to late 80s kind of disappears and uh, becomes kind of more mythological thing than than an actually a viable gang. But all the guys that were involved in it that were still around are still active in various aspects of organized crime, whether still in the drug trade or in in other areas. Now, those those connections, this may be a little bit too much detail and stuff that's really hard to learn. They had connections with the black community. Did they have like a point person that you could find out that that then, you know, put, took the larger loads that they were able to get in mm-hmm. from overseas and then start distributing more and onto a street level because they didn't go out into the streets of Harlem and and sell drugs on the street corner. Yeah, so there were a lot of close connections between the black dealers at the time and, and the Purple Gang. Uh, Frank Vicerto Jr. had used some dealers in Harlem to move his product. Uh, probably the best known one is Matthew Madonna, who was the major drug supplier to Nicky Barnes. And, okay. you know, Nicky Barnes, obviously very well-known Harlem drug dealer back in the day. And Matthew Madonna was a member of the Purple Gang, uh, who later became kind of the acting boss of Lou Casey's when he was released from prison in the 90s. But, um, yeah, so there's there's a relationship there where – they start off as suppliers and then, uh, you know, over time, some of the, the black gangs go off on their own, become their, their own self-sufficient operation and, and don't need the mafia to supply them anymore. So, uh, but definitely in the, in the early years, there were a lot of close ties. So those old black exploitation movies, as we used to call them, like Superfly, where they always showed the, the evil, the corrupt policeman, the evil, of. uh, usually Italian sounding white guy and then yeah. the black dealer. So that's all based in fact then, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think to some extent, yeah, especially back back in the early seventies for sure. <laughs> yeah, because uh, the Kansas City, the Kansas City, the New York City Police Department, Special Investigations Division, the narcotics people, they were uh you know, there there was some shady business going on back back oh, in those yeah. days. Yeah, this is you know, the time of the Knapp Commission, uh, yeah. you know, Frank Serpico and and his uh, you know testimony in the in the resulting movie with Al Pacino just kind of really showing how how embedded the mafia were in police corruption and especially in certain neighborhoods where yeah. they were you know paying off everybody I'm trying to think that Pleasant Avenue what else was uh, was Joey Gallo and and his crew were, were when no was that's that? President Street that's President Brooklyn. Street yeah. okay I'm get, getting my yeah. streets my P streets mixed <laughs> up <okay>. here <laughs> Uh, there's actually a really, there, there's a great collectible mafia book. You, you can't find a copy for under a couple hundred dollars called the Pleasant Avenue Connection uh, from the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the cops that worked on that original case that that busted a lot of the main heroin dealers at the time. So if you might be able to find a, in your local library. It's really an interesting book. It's kind of a nice snapshot of like the early 70s um, and, and the mafia drug gang. And, you know, one of the other things I think, through my research, and and you know this because we've talked about this before with the Kansas City Tampa connection, is this eternal myth that the mafia were never involved in drugs? And yeah. I don't think anything could be further from the truth. They were <laughs> deep in it for a long time. Yeah, way way too much money. And and the families you mentioned that they were connected to are the families of Bonanno, Genovese, and Lucchese. Those are the families that then had, and they just didn't add Gambino in it, but they all you know, were well-known has come out. And, you know, as we look back in history, mm-hmm. that they all were making money off the heroin and then the cocaine and, and probably still do to some extent, greater or lesser today, because there's just too much money and just way yeah. too much money. Yep. It. It's too corrupting an influence. It's, uh, it's just, it's amazing. So these guys, uh, as they, uh, you know, kind of matured and got older. Yeah. How did that? How did that progress in their relationship with the, with the, as they wanted to go into the crime family, the La Cosa Nostra families, and you know they they didn't really become the sixth family. Although I read somewhere where there were some uh, some uh, people that that claimed that they might be the sixth family. They never really quite got to there. How how did that develop as they got older? Yeah, so there was a period of time, like 77, 78, there was a bunch of news articles written about the Purple Gang. It was like the the flavor of the month, if you will. Yeah. They called them, you know, the, the six family, that they were getting ready to take on all the other five families. And that's a little kind of media hyperbola. And But but in reality, what, what was happening is that the guys that already had family connections now were getting, you know, in their mid to late 20s had shown their ability to make money on the street or now being pulled into the to the family so guys like angelo prisco who becomes a genovese family member mikey mancuso who goes into the bananos and now is currently allegedly the head of the banano crime family here in 2023 you know he's a purple gang member um uh, you know other guys like danny leo who was a, a genovese acting boss for a while these guys start making that move up into the into the into the big leagues. And the, but then you also have guys like the Meldish brothers, Michael and Joseph, who can never be made because they're not Italian. They kind of keep on the more street level criminal activities, but still have ties to the different families. So as they mature, as they, they get older, they, they really kind of become absorbed into the overall organized crime picture of New York. 
Well, it's uh, it's quite a little slice of life in uh, in New York City that that you've stumbled onto. That's not yeah. has not really been reported on or books no. written about particularly. I, I first saw you talking about it, or I, I saw your book or something. I thought, well, who is that? I did <laughs> my own little bit of research, did kind of quick little overview recently, and and threw it up on my podcast just to like instruct myself in it because I knew I was going to be talking to you and it's a it's a really interesting little uh, kind of a hidden little pocket of organized crime in New York City that that most people didn't know about there needs to be a movie made I think about these guys it's got all the right stuff yeah yeah especially in the early years like the first couple years like 72 73 74 you see the a lot of killings internally like there's a lot of drug beefs between guys and the gang. And uh, there's quite a bit of violence. I was uh, fortunate enough to get a copy of a DEA report, which I referenced in a little snippet I read. Um, And it really kind of started outlining all these murders that not only were they responsible for, but other ones they were allegedly involved with or tied to. Um, And then as the 70s go on, their name pops up in other killings, like these Genovese family killings in the late 70s. tying into a New Jersey mobster by the name of John DeGilio. Um, And then one of the weirdest killings that the Purple Gang is tied to is the killing of uh, Donald Arano in in Miami, Florida in the mid-1980s. He was the founder of uh, Donzi, uh, Apache, made other cigarette boats. And uh, he, he got wrapped up in that South Florida drug era thing. Um, but what was interesting is he was also very good friends with Frank Vicerdo Jr. and and uh, Paul Cayano, guys that were members of the Purple Gang. So after his murder, the Purple Gang kind of come under law enforcement radar. And the, the gentleman that's ultimately charged and convicted of his murder is likely tied into a drug syndicate run by this guy named Ben Kramer. So not a direct tie to the purple gang, but still the fact that they're, you know, around all these kind of more high profile killings was interesting. Yeah. I always wanted to do that story on that, uh, Daniel Aaron though, uh, Thunderboats or something like that was the name of yeah. his company or anyhow, I always wanted to do that. I just never got back around to it. I, I read all up on it one time and then got distracted, but it, it's a heck of a story. Oh yeah. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, that guy's like, you know, Mr. Uh, upstanding businessman and but yet he's got all these connections with the drug gangs and and ends up being a victim of a, a assassination really yeah yeah and he was uh he was tied in with george uh uh george bush uh, the elder george oh, yeah, hw right. bush and uh he was actually making so so in a nutshell the, the thing was he was making boats for customs agents to intercept drug dealers but th- his <laughs> other boats were being bought by drug dealers <laughs> so yeah. it's i know it's a heck of a story <laughs> get into that one all right is there any other particular stories that that you want people giving people a little taste out of your book here uh, yeah i think a, a, another interesting thing is um the, the as and it was really apparent with the gang. So they all kind of grow up in East Harlem, which is this tight, tight knit, but, you know, real urban, dense neighborhood uh, on the upper, upper, upper east side of Manhattan, small neighborhood, um, which at its height was actually a much bigger Little Italy than the famous Little Italy on Mulberry Street. But they kind of follow that pattern that a lot of mobsters do. So even though their early exploits are centered in East Harlem, by the late 70s, they're going suburban. So they're moving up to Yonkers and to Tuckahoe and these kind of 
outside the city neighborhoods and their crimes are following them. So now you, you start seeing news articles from these more kind of suburban, even quasi-rural police departments. Suddenly there's mafia guys moving into their town. And uh, <laughs> so it was kind of interesting because it, it follows that pattern that you see with the mafia in New York is, you know, they kind of got more successful. They move out to Long Island, they move, you know, out into the suburbs. Yeah. Yeah. Same here in Kansas City. Exactly the same. Yeah. I guess it's the same all over. Interesting. Did they do, uh, did you run on to, especially early, any stories about them doing a lot of uh, uh, ripoffs of other drug dealers? They had, they get picked tips up because you're in that world. You pick tips up about other successful drug dealers and learn where their stash house was or maybe where their, they kept their money or things like that and then go do a home invasion kind of robbery. We get those all the time. And you can always tell in the newspapers, Two people found dead in a house, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and, and uh, I can tell you right now, it's a drug robbery. So uh, uh, did, did they get into any of that? So, yeah. So there are some stories um, and some like rumors around that they did exactly that. They were kidnapping other drug dealers. They were kidnapping low level wise guy associates and basically a kidnapping ransom uh, type scheme, exactly as you described it. Uh, and they're also implicated in a couple bigger, uh, the disappearance of Atura Zappi, who was a um, Gambino guy in Florida. Supposedly there's a purple connect, purple gang connection to that. Uh, but but certainly in those early years when they're out and about, uh, there's definitely some some kidnapping. I didn't see a lot in terms of like robbery or, or inv- home invasion type stuff, but the, the kidnapping for ransom definitely was was one of the things they were involved in. Interesting. That's how all these young mob guys start is ripping off other criminals because mm-hmm. they they wanted to have the the balls to do it, if you will, mm-hmm. where other people don't really have the have the the cojones to to do something like that. It's uh, interesting progress. It's, it, I've seen it here in Kansas City, <laughs> and it's you know we even had one uh, FBI set up a drug sting, and these guys found out about it and they were they're the ones that that looked like they were the fbi was going to sting them they didn't know how bad these guys were and they went went in and bureau had the the hotel room wired up for camera and sound and the guy just pulls out a gun starts shooting the man guy that's gonna the informants is gonna sell mm-hmm. him these four or five kilos of of dope and and then they arrested the getaway driver out in front and and i know from intelligence sources that they were part of a gang that was getting into that and that's how they were getting started was was doing kidnappings and and ripping off other people for, yeah, for it's drugs. crazy all right scott dj from tampa florida weber city mafia tour and uh the purple gang uh Remind us the title of that and, yep. and your other titles, too. You've got several other titles. I didn't write them down. I know you've got them off the top of your head. And I'll put links to all this down below, guys. Yeah. So my the book is called Hitmen, the Mafia Drugs and the East Harlem Purple Gang. Um, also wrote Garden State Gangland, which is kind of the first overall comprehensive history of the Mafia in New Jersey. Uh, and Cigar City Mafia, which is the story of the, the Tampa Mafia. All right. Great. Scott, uh, I really appreciate you coming. Yeah, anytime. It was great great being on again. It's good to see you again. Guys, don't forget, I like to ride motorcycles, so watch out for motorcycles when you're out there on the street. And if you have a problem with PTSD and you've been in the service, go to the VA website and get that hotline. If you have a problem with drugs or alcohol, our good friend Anthony Ruggiano, who was on the show not too long ago, 
has a hotline on his website. Uh, I think it's reformedgangsters.com or anthonyruggiano.com. And he also has a YouTube page and he also works in treatment down in Florida somewhere. So call that hotline and maybe you can get in treatment with Anthony Ruggiano. And and so thanks a lot, Scott, for coming yeah. on the show. And real quick, I interviewed Anthony for for the Purple Gang book. He had some good good stories with that. So oh, oh, tying great. that all in. Yeah. <laughs> great. Thanks Very a lot, cool. guys.